what upfronts reveal about the TV business, and will there be a Netflix of podcasts? This is episode 64 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Tom, this episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you by Stack Adapt. Stack Adapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. If you are an agency or a brand, the biggest challenge you have is capturing attention. We talk about it on this show all the time. Mm -hmm. Stack Adapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. It's simple technology and it works. Visit stackadapt.com and request an invite today. Tom, what upfronts reveal about the TV business? This is from a piece in The Ringer. The title is TV Changes, But Programming Tactics Stay the Same. And this is an interesting piece because I think what's outlined in this is that, you know, I, I don't think that there's anything dramatically new in this. Would you agree with that? Oh, it was a long it's, piece. I mean, I was trying to tease out what the, the real lesson was. Well, I mean, here... <laughs> <laughs> How to turn off the audience? No, right I'm away. kidding. There's one. There's, there's so, one in there. <laughs> I've got at least one. I mean, and again, it's not that this is new. It's that that I think these trends are progressive in a linear fashion. The one that's. I mean, I don't want to talk about the late night wars. I don't care about that. Who cares about the late night wars anymore? Um, but the vertical alignment thing, I think, is really interesting because. Um, let me just read to you a little bit of it. Even though the entire purpose of Upfronts is to appeal to advertisers, this year's series orders indicate that networks, or rather the conglomerates that own them, are desperately courting new sources of revenue for any given show. Run down the list of new and returning series, and a pattern quickly presents itself. NBC's The Champions is produced by NBC Universal TV. ABC's The Gospel of Kevin is produced by ABC Studios. Mm -hmm. CBS's Man with the Plan is produced by CBS Television Studios. Companies increase increasingly prefer to do business with themselves. Indeed, almost every TV show is distributed by a network and produced by a studio. Almost every major TV network is part of a larger corporation that also owns a studio. So the networks make money from shows by selling ads during a live broadcast. Studios make money by selling shows not only to networks but also to secondary networks and to streaming services like Netflix. Increasingly, networks are ordering series from within the family, which is why The Hollywood Reporter calls right. it the most vertically aligned season yet. So obviously, Tom, the more pieces of the pipeline you own, the more ways you can make money from the same piece of intellectual property, right? And it's not only advertising because advertising is how the networks make, make money, but it's not necessarily how the people who produce the shows and distribute the shows make money because they make shows money from other networks or other platforms, which in, current, in turn could be financed by subscription, et cetera, right? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. She said one thing up front that I thought was uh, really interesting because it kind of sums up everything that's going on. She said, the future has never been more uncertain. Right. But here's the thing. Should you look at that uncertainty as depressing? I don't think so. I mean, I'm more reminded of something Tom Stoppard wrote in his play Arcadia. And, and the play, by the way, was about the relationship between past and present, order and disorder, mm -hmm. certainty and uncertainty, mm -hmm. what everyone's going through. He wrote the future is disorder 
A door like this has cracked open five or six times since we got up on our hind legs. It's the best possible time to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew is wrong. And, mm. and you see, and, and this is where I think TV, well, especially you know the networks and, and the TV business has has problems, because Mark, if if every major network is part of a, lo- a larger corporation that also owns a studio. Mm-hmm. People are trying to satisfy all these parties in order to relieve this anxiety, this uncertainty about what's going to work, what's not going to work. And it looks like to me they're going to kind of stick with whatever has worked in the past for them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, it goes on to talk about that. I mean, I talked about the vertical integration. Then the next section is really a, uh, a war for intellectual property. And it talks about how um, that so many of the new products, the new shows, are reboots of old shows and in some cases reboots of old shows with the exact same cast of the old shows. Right. We don't need to go into the details. And uh, then it goes on to um, uh, talk about another area related to that, which is – and here's the heading. The line between cancellation and renewal is vanishingly small. Mm. So – in effect, what they're saying is the ratings, that what defines a rating success, that bar is so low today that the distance between failure and success purely in terms of ratings almost doesn't exist anymore. Interesting. <laughs> so that decisions are being made more on kind of the, the, the business ties that bind these shows to the networks, to the distributors, et cetera. And those business ties have different configurations of profit and loss that have less to do with the with the simple question and answer, how many people are watching our show? And thus the answer that's, to the question that someone asked me today, how do some of these TV shows and movies even get made? <laughs> that's what somebody said to me. But if you don't understand, to your point, how it's interconnected, Right mm-hmm. then, you don't really know how the money's being made. That's right. It's in. I think it's especially true at the network level. I'm finding, and I suddenly have experience in this. I'm finding that once you get off network, and you go to the cable channels, you go over the top to the Netflix and the Hulu's and so on. That is a different world. That is more of a wild west. Right. And those guys are in the market for original content. They're in the market for you know syndicate for programming that that's familiar and archived and all that as well. But there is a market for original content. There is a chance to get interesting new things made. Um, but it's not going to come from the networks. It's going to come off network. It's going to come over the top. Yeah. No. Listen. Who, truthfully, who could have predicted? I say no one. The success of This Is Us, that TV show. Mark, I can't tell you the number of experts in the industry who told me with regard to writing a screenplay and scripts, never use flashbacks. They don't work. (laughs) I I can't tell you how many times I was told that. This is us is is all flashbacks. Well, what's interesting (laughs) about that is... Fargo is full of flashbacks. I know. And that's regarded as one of the best shows on television. And, you know, uh, having nothing to do with Fargo, but my own podcast, Inside Psycho, is chock full of flashbacks. I know. And um, no one, uh, people have complained about this or that, but no one's complained about the flashbacks. In fact, the feedback I've gotten largely is, wow, this increase, this um, enhances the richness and complexity of the experience. Hmm. 
and you're able to ignore time as a limiting variable. Thus, you're able to, you know, play tricks with time and tell stories that aren't dependent on a linear. I mean, to be freed of a linear uh, trajectory is uh, an incredible gift oh, yeah. to storytellers. Yeah. Well, just, um, you know, that kind of sums up the old uh, no one knows anything Hollywood line. Well, that's true. And didn't they also say no uh, voiceover? Wasn't that also kind of oh, one yeah. of the screenwriting like, There were so many no-nos. And, and to your point, it's kind of funny. So This Is Us made flashbacks cool, so everybody's using flashbacks. Well, it happened before then. But also, if I'm not mistaken with regard to This Is Us, I could be wrong. I may be remembering this wrong. But wasn't This Is Us the show that uh, debuted after the Super Bowl? I believe it did. I think this goes to another point that we've talked about before, which is the importance of leveraging attention where you already have it. Right. Right. Exactly. And this is a whole area that is 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 worth deeper discussion. But this whole idea that you know people, uh, it's not just how stuff gets made, but it's how stuff becomes popular. Right. And stuff becomes popular when it's in the orbit of where attention already exists. Right. And this is such a huge thing that people don't understand. You know, people put out a podcast, they say, "Well, it's." great people are going to love it it literally doesn't matter unless it's in the it's in the orbit of an uh, of an, a pre-existing pool of attention and curiosity um, otherwise it's just the tree that falls in the forest no well, you're right that hits on half of her what, what i think is her most astute observation in in the whole piece which applies to all brands by the way not just media brands and she so mm -hmm. she wrote that breaking out is only half the battle and the only thing harder than busting through the noise is continuing to do so week after week after week. Yeah, she talks about something interesting that even established series are seeing their numbers down. Now, how much of that is because people have just, you know, drifted away, lost interest in the concept? And how much of it is the fact that there are so many more choices, so many more distractions, and the audience en masse is being you know, kind of dripped out of the medium, it's hard to tell. Uh, but clearly, it's, it's, it's harder to grab attention. Remember, it wasn't that many years ago when um, I remember watching the first season of Breaking Bad. Right. And the numbers were not good. The numbers were okay, but not good. And then just as Mad Men before it, it goes to DVD at that time. It goes to streaming. People catch up on old uh, seasons. Uh, people watch it, you know, one episode after the other, um, and all of a sudden a new season comes out and boom, it's a hit. The ability for previous seasons to launch ne new seasons can't be underestimated. No, no, um, but to your point earlier, there's so much choice that that new season that comes out, it had better keep your attention. I mean, I, I, raved, to right, you about, I raved to you about Better Call Saul. Mm -hmm. And this season is is like slow. It's a drag. Mm, and I really? yeah, and I feel like tuning out. You know, so why? Because look at the choices I have. Hmm. That's interesting. It's funny because I have a different take on it this season. It's it's I I'm I'm feeling this is just a this is a side conversation, but I'm feeling like you're it's you're getting more of his character of Saul's character now than ever before and understanding more of that dynamic more reasons to care and i find it very influential for me you know because as i'm writing these podcasts now um to to really kind of capture why you should care about anybody who's in it right 
it's one of those things that, you know, especially in the podcast space, nobody really pays attention to. Uh, the storytelling is kind of superficial. Um, uh, but I'm really, you know, on the one that I'm working on right now, I'm really trying to get deep into the motivation. And it's, I, I think it's working. Um, but uh, that's not for me to decide. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the point of her whole piece. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Maysacker and Mark Ramsey. Will there be a Netflix of podcasts? Now, Tom, you know, at any given point in time, I've got to have a piece that just gets my dander up. You know that. Oh, of course. I've got to have a piece that gets me upset. And, and then you rant again at the end. I know. everybody. And does. then I rant again at the end, <laughs> although I think I have more of a rave this time, but okay, that's coming good. later. So... Um, you know, my first question for you is, here's the article from TechCo, uh, why the Netflix of podcasts is the big, biggest media battleground of 2017. Tom, what does that, let's break that down. What does that even mean? I don't know. The but, Netflix of podcasts. But first now, of all, this was recommended by a listener, by the way. Okay, in fairness. <laughs> I, but boy, that's why I like it, because it was recommended by a listener. Anything that gets me upset, if it comes from a fan, it's even better. Exactly. Right? So, yes, this is a great uh, piece, and thank you for suggesting this to us. And just a reminder, folks, hashtag Media Unplugged, recommend uh, what you want us to look at, and we will. But, Tom, the Netflix of podcasts, break that down for me. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. It means okay, a subscription well, service yes, that, right. that, has, that has the most view, listeners of podcasts out there. Okay, well, I would frame it a little differently. <laughs> Let's just say a subscription service, and by subscription, I mean something you pay cash money for, right? So I want to pay for this because it allows me to get all these podcasts under one roof. Right. Well, you know, the first thing I have to say is the whole idea that you're going to pay for access to podcasts is pretty much null and void ever since Apple decided to plow all these into iTunes, right? I mean, the minute you provide a, 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 an archive for free, the idea that you're going to pay for this unless there's some immense, uh, incredible added value by the paying um, no, you're right. um, doesn't exist. And I mean, remember that Netflix in particular was the legitimization of streaming video because prior to Netflix, your options for streaming video were to what? Rent a show or download something off iTunes? Um, but the idea that you would be able to see a bundle of stuff for one price that you couldn't otherwise see unless you were to go to, you know, Pirate Bay or whatever and illegally download it, um, that didn't exist. So it was new value. Yeah, it was, it was right. sig significant value, right? Yeah, no, the value was clear. It, exactly. And that's, that's you know, and, and I think he compared this in, in he was looking at that subscription-based service for books, remember, that book model, all you can eat, where you, right. you subscribe and you can read all these books. And he said, well, you know, the voracious readers of particular genres like maybe romance or sci-fi, they'll stop buying new books because they have access to all of these books that they'll just consume them all the time. And that hurts the publishers and the authors. But, but, but that has to do with the size of the pie, well, but it's one thing beyond that. It's what's your what's your best alternative? What's your opportunity cost? If you don't do all you can eat, your next best option is to pay per item, right? That's exactly right. That's not true in the podcast space. Your next best option is free and put up with a few spots. And anybody who thinks the spots are that irritating, considering you can skip them easily if you so desire, is crazy. I think we've proved time and again that spots generally are not that irritating, not unless... 
um, I mean, not, not irritating enough for you to pay a premium for a free option. Pick any radio station. The number of people who will pay for that radio station without spots is negligible. Now, Sirius XM is not a bunch of radio stations without spots. The biggest value proposition there is, you know, live sports, Howard Stern. There are tons of value propositions which are unique to Sirius XM, which are well beyond the idea of non-commercial music entertainment. Oh, you're right. It's such a, it's such a strange catch-22, because as you're speaking, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, these podcasts are free, and, and, and they're basically funded by having some small spots or sponsors. I said, right. And then I st- my mind says, okay... Why don't authors do that with their books? You know, you're reading, you get to the end of chapter one, and there's this ad <laughs> that mm-hmm. you read, and then you flip, start chapter two. You see how weird this is? <laughs> this... Yeah, but what's the reason for that? That seems to me to be perfectly reasonable. Yeah, give the book away and make, make your money on sponsorship. Put little sponsor ads in the book. Well, why, what's wrong with that idea? Why doesn't that happen? This is what I'm trying to tell you, because the people, <laughs> the people that aren't selling many books, can't get the sponsors. The people who are selling a lot of books, why would they Don't want need the sponsors? sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? It's, and it's the same thing with podcasts because the, the, the way that you're going to have a successful network, paid network of podcasts, is if somehow mm-hmm. you can attract the really popular podcasts, have them go off of free platforms into your platform, but why Why would a successful podcast do that? Why? Because um, if they come into yours, they're going to have to dish out a percentage to the other people that have podcasts in this network. That's how people are going to make their money, right? Mm-hmm. Some percentage based on subscriptions or donations or whatever. So why would you do that? And you'd be giving away the relationship now with the relationship mm-hmm. that you have with the listeners, the relationship with the sponsors, the data, you'd be giving it to the network. Well, you're focused on the uh, producer's side, and I'm still on the consumer's side. I don't see why the consumers would do it, unless you're telling me as the producer that I'm going to uh, essentially erect a paywall. Um, right. And now I'm going to put my content behind a paywall, and I think we all know how well that works. <laughs> uh, it's really problematic unless you're, what, the top one or two or three newspapers in America. So yeah, it's just I just want to go through some of the notes in this because I think they're so objectionable. Um, <laughs> so while podcasts don't seem poised to overtake TV and sheer hours watched, <clears throat> understatement, um, they do have a healthy core audience, which means they could theoretically sustain a Netflix model. Well, I mean, did I miss the logic, Tom? <laughs> what the fact that nobody's some, paying for this? No, no, no. That. Wait, because they have a healthy core audience, they could theoretically sustain a Netflix model. I, that conclusion doesn't follow from the premise, it seems to me. Just because you have a healthy core audience doesn't necessarily mean you could sustain a Netflix model. Here are the companies hoping to become the Netflix of podcasts and the, what the big barrier is they face. And he talks about um, Stitcher, which has almost no users. It was purchased for $4.5 million by uh, Scripps, which is almost no money, by the way. Um, and they're already call, calling their new Stitcher premium service the Netflix of podcasts. <laughs> that compares to Midroll, which has something else called the Netflix of podcasts, and Audible, which has something else, which has been called the Netflix of podcasts. All three have one thing in common. Guess what it is? I don't know. They're not the Netflix of podcasts. 
<laughs> so so uh, he talks about Spotify and what they've been able to achieve. Any publisher platform that has cultivated a genuinely invested audience will be increasingly successful in the years to come. Okay, that's cliche. Podcasts are doing well for themselves as this summary from Edison's Infinite Dial explains. What the summary doesn't specify is that 15% of the uh, average, uh, the American audience in an average week is listening to at least one podcast, which is not exactly a large mm -hmm. number. Um, it says they remain cheap produ produce in comparison to TV, to which I would say, yes, too cheap. Um, <laughs> and um, what he doesn't quantify is what we were talking about before, which is the production cost is cheap. The attention cost is extraordinarily expensive. Yep. Uh, the attention cost is almost priceless, and that's what people don't understand. Um, let me see. Then he goes on to, let's see. In the end, it's possible that lucrative ad money found in podcasts, thanks to their strong niche audiences, uh, will remain the dominant revenue stream for podcasters. And Netflix of podcasts might be a sustainable model. It is not. But podcast ads are probably a better one. So he ends where he began. Uh, he also, by the way, provides a very popular um, illustration, which I think I'd like to break down. Yeah, because I'm going to ask you that because I was going to say he wrote that a podcast with 200,000 listeners yes. should earn at least a million a year. Now, if that's right, okay. we need to pick up the pace on Media Unplugged a little bit. Well, we do need to pick. There's no <laughs> question we need to pick up the pace on Media Unplugged. It is true, I will tell you, that theoretically that, um, and I worked out the math, yes, if you have 200,000 listeners per week, you have a weekly show, let's say, and you have 200,000 listeners per week. Yes, according to the math, it is realistic that you could pull down a million dollars a year. What it doesn't say is it doesn't speak to just how hard it is <laughs> <laughs> to have $200,000 a week, 200,000 listeners a week. I mean, you'll be atop the iTunes charts every week with those numbers, every single week. Um, I mean, it really understates the, it makes it sound like all you need is 200,000 listeners a week. You know, some of these TV shows, I will tell you, that are being uh, canceled and uh, renewed um, are getting less than a million viewers a week. I mean, they're six, seven, eight hundred thousand viewers a week in some cases. Right. Um, that should give you some perspective. And those are things that are on television where the budgets are infinitely greater. And oh, by the way, the money made is infinitely greater. But still, um, the costs of production are a lot greater. So yeah, it is possible. But getting two hundred, the, the challenge to getting two hundred thousand, and don't listen to a lot of these yahoos who who <laughs> lie about their metrics. Um, two hundred thousand listeners is not the same as two hundred thousand hits, two hundred thousand uh, downloads. You know, the, it's not. I know, the but same. The people look. They they see. They think. Well, okay, in the United States alone, there's four hundred million people. Let's see, two hundred thousand listeners. That's only like around four thousand listeners per state. So if I can get four thousand people in each state to live, you know what I mean? Well, but this is the old this is the old uh, <laughs> the, the the old problem people have up in Silicon Valley, right? Where they go in and say, "All I need is one percent market share," right, right. and then I, then all my dreams will be fulfilled, and so will yours. And you know, they what they don't anticipate is just how hard it is sometimes to get that first one percent. Exactly. But yeah, and the other thing about this I think that's interesting is in terms of advertising, I mean, anyone who listens to podcasts knows that with the exception of our show and the good folks at Stack Adapt, um, a lot of it is very low-rent stuff. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, direct response. Right. 
um, ads in many cases where people are, you know, the direct response is kind of the, um, the, the, the first ad you get, not the last ad you get if you're a publisher. And um, so until we progress, we get better metrics, we progress to, you know, more sophisticated advertisers, a better quality of advertisers. And frankly, until we get beyond the simple act of doing endorsements, do you know how many endorsements I've cut <laughs> for Inside Psycho, Tom? It's insane. I know. Uh, we've got to get beyond that and then recognize that uh, for a lot of the people doing podcasts right now, um, the big win, the big money win this relates to the IP question we talked about before, is leveraging your intellectual property into other platforms. Exactly. Television, film, et cetera. It's, what, it's, why, you know, non, it's why fiction books are, uh, are snapped up when they're in galleys, mm -hmm. right? Because somebody wants to make them into Movies. a TV show or a movie. TV show, yeah. right. So it's very much the same. It's why your book is going to be so amazing, by the way, may I well, say. Well, thank you very much. Mike. And it turns out there's already a screenplay written, which, is, which you don't very often find. So that's great. <laughs> Everything's backwards for me. <laughs> that's right. Rants and raves are coming right up. Remember, this episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you by StackAdapt. StackAdapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. StackAdapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. Please support Media Unplugged by visiting stackadapt.com and requesting an invite today. Tom, time for rants and raves. What have you? Well, something in the news gave me this opportunity to rant about something that I just like to rant about because it's something people just don't see. It's right in front of their eyes. So on our last episode, I think it was, we pretty much skewered Twitter for their lack of innovation, especially around its users' desires. And now mm -hmm. I've read, and maybe due to our show, who knows, that Twitter has rehired co-founder Biz Stone full-time to come back to Twitter and create a sense of confidence. <laughs> In his, listen, in his recent Medium post titled, What's Happening With Me, Stone writes that his top focus will be to guide the company culture, the energy, that feeling. He goes on to write that it's important that everyone understands the whole story of Twitter and each of oh, our boy. roles in that story. I'll shape the experience internally so it's also felt outside the company. Now, Mark... Now now, this is because Medium is going that well? I, I, listen, <laughs> I cannot tell you how often I've seen this back-asswards approach to stalled organizational growth. <laughs> so, so this is what the th thinking is. Let's try to change the culture, the people in their feelings, because that is our real problem. Right. And people invariably toss out these business maxims like culture eats strategy for breakfast and other pith mm -hmm. pithy folk wis wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Mark, I'm mm -hmm. going to tell you something. Trust me. Culture doesn't eat strategy for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Culture <laughs> doesn't determine or limit strategy. Culture and strategy are inseparable and in, in they're interdependent. It's like heart and head. So here's mm -hmm. what I'd ask Biz Stone before he sets off to tell stories and hire motivational speakers and all that. Is Twitter's culture producing the results it is designed to produce? Mm -hmm. Now listen, that sounds like a ridiculously obvious question, right? Because his answers would be something like, well, of course it isn't. 
That's why they brought me back to Twitter to boost morale and produce results. And that's the illusion which leads almost every business blunder I've seen out there. And it's to imagine that the culture is not producing the results that it's designed to produce. To believe it has something to do with the people, their feelings, attitudes, behaviors, their morale. It doesn't. Twitter's culture is producing the exact results it was designed to produce because the design determines the results. Mm-hmm. Both financially, experientially, for the customers, for employees, if you want to change the culture, you don't try to change the people, their thoughts and feelings. You change the design of the business. If you want a winning team, you don't hire Tony Robbins to pump up the troops. You figure mm-hmm. out what it takes to provide a standout, valuable, mutually beneficial experience for customers, for suppliers, for partners, over and over and over again. You innovate, execute, innovate, execute. And in an age when everything you thought you knew is wrong, it's your only option. Morale, Mm -hmm. that will simply come along for the exciting ride. And if people don't want to, you find people who will, period. So there's my rant. What's so interesting about Twitter in general is that has there ever been a company which gets as much attention as Twitter other than Facebook? No. <laughs> and yet, look at the look at the uh, usage of the platform. I mean, it is it is endorsed by the president of the United States for crying out loud. And yet, look at the usage of the platform. It just isn't the kind of thing most people want to use most of the time. And I, you know, you can't. <laughs> you can put lipstick on that pig any shade you want. It's still a yeah a pig. <laughs> it's not storytelling. Yeah, right. Telling a story about the pig's not going to change it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good one. I have uh, I have one I want to read to you, actually. This is, uh, I don't know, I think this is a, a rave. I don't know. I just think it's amazing. <laughs> so I'm going to read it to you. It's right out of USA Today. In fact, it's out of the paper copy. So if you hear rustling in the background, that's what it is. I know, it's, it's so old school. <clears throat> Here we go. You know those little pre-movie segments where they ask you to turn, turn off or silence your cell phone or not talk or text? Well, this guy really takes them seriously. A Texas man is suing his date for texting while they were watching a 3D showing of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 at an Austin theater. According to local media, Brendan Vesmar, 37, is asking for $17.31, which was the price of his ticket. Quote, This is like one of my biggest pet peeves, he told Austin's American Statesman. It was kind of a first date from hell, he told the paper, saying that about 15 minutes after the movie began, his date, who he met on dating app Bumble... (laughs) He bumbled on that one, didn't he? (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, if that doesn't, you know, pass this prologue, um, started texting in his lawsuit, which was filed at Travis County Small Claims Court. He said the woman, quote, activated her phone at least 10 to 20 times in 15 minutes. (laughs) to read and send text messages. So (laughs) he told the newspaper she refused to stop when requested and that he suggested she should go outside if she wanted to continue. She left the theater and never came back, but the problem was they had gone in her car, so now he was stranded. (laughs) The woman said, oh my God, this is crazy, she said, a 35-year-old who requested that her name not be used. I wonder why, (laughs) by the paper. Later, the woman who lives in suburban Round Rock has issued a statement 
I did have a very brief date with Brandon that I chose to end prematurely. His behavior made me extremely uncomfortable, and I felt I needed to remove myself from the situation for my own safety. <laughs> he has escalated the situation far past what any mentally healthy person would. I feel sorry that I hurt his feelings badly enough that he felt he needed to commit so much time and effort to seeking revenge. I hope one day he can move past this and find peace in his life. <laughs> The woman told the newspaper that she only texted on her phone two or three times, which I doubt, Tom. Yes, I doubt it, too. Quote, I had my phone low and I wasn't bothering anybody, she said. She was texting a friend who was having a fight with her boyfriend. She said, it wasn't like constant texting. The woman told the paper that Vesmar who had called her to ask her, ask her to pay him back for the movie ticket, but she refused because, quote, he took me out on a date. Meanwhile, she said she planned to file a protective order oh, <laughs> against him for contacting her little sister to get the money. According to the lawsuit, the paper reported the texting was a direct violation of the theater's po policy and that, <laughs> that his date adversely affected his viewing experience and that of other patrons. So there you go, Tom. You can take the law very, very seriously. I just thought that was a great story because in this age of utter intense polarization— where people can't have a political conversation without getting into a fist fight, they also can't talk about texting without creating a protective order against each other. Isn't that amazing? Who is the lawyer that took this case for, to make, what, a percentage of $14 and something? Oh, I have a feeling it's probably on a retainer <laughs> in this case. <laughs> oh, crazy, boy. crazy stuff. That's that's media unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. <laughs> I just dismissed Stitcher. Uh oh. <laughs> and while you're there at iTunes, not at Stitcher, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. <laughs> don't rate us at Stitcher, by the way. And please, if you work at Stitcher, really don't rate us. <laughs> you can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Like we did this week. <laughs> exactly. Catch up, catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the amazing producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio from media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. S-C-H-M-I-D-T. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. 